Good morning, everyone. Here on the last day of May, we will finish our walk through 1 Corinthians. Last week, in the introduction to this final chapter, I gave an outline of the nine different things the Apostle Paul needed to convey here in the conclusion of this letter. His primary or first concern was to give instructions about how to collect and deliver a large offering that would come from all the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church, which was suffering through a severe drought and persecution by Jewish religious authorities. The poor in this church were, of course, suffering the most in such conditions. We covered these instructions in the first four verses of chapter 16 last week. Today we come to the last eight things Paul conveys to end this letter. And as you might expect in any letter, these last paragraphs include everything from travel plans to final exhortations, warning, and greetings, both personal and from others. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'll be reading from verse 5 through verse 24 and from the English Standard Version. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they've made up for your absence, for they are refreshed, re, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. 
greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we look to your word this morning, we ask you to open our eyes and ears and minds as your Holy Spirit applies your truth to our hearts. Help us to get a much better sense of your care for us as we see your servant and apostle, Paul, demonstrate his love, care, and concern for those you called him to shepherd and minister to. Where we need to recognize our sin, point that out. Where we need to remember who we belong to, remind us it is you. Where we need strength to stand, keep our hope fixed on you. Where we need love for our brethren, show us again the cross. Thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus that is with us always. In his name we pray, amen. So we begin today with the second thing Paul needs to convey to the Corinthians. In verses 5 through 9, Paul discusses his own upcoming travel plans and his immediate plans. In verses 5 through 7 are Paul's upcoming travel plans. We read there, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Now remember, this is Paul writing this letter from Ephesus, which is east of Corinth across the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor, what's today Turkey. First, Paul emphasizes his desire to travel to Macedonia, which is north of Corinth, where Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi are. He hadn't seen those people for quite a while. After seeing and ministering to the churches in Macedonia, Paul then hopes to end up in Corinth for the winter when traveling was so difficult. This would also give the Corinthians an opportunity to help Paul prepare for wherever the Lord sends him next. He says, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Notice in verse 7 that Paul really wants to stay for some extended time, which indicates how serious he is about this visit. But also notice that Paul is very aware that the Lord may intervene and want him elsewhere. He ends verse 7 with, If the Lord permits. You know, missionaries especially have to operate with this truth seared into their hearts 
and many times learn it over and over again. Trusting the Lord in those times not only stretches their faith, but has to be dealt with and applied constantly to every part of day-to-day life. Asking questions like, does the Lord know what he's doing? All of a sudden are not questions that someone without faith asks, but become questions God uses to prove his faithfulness and sovereignty in their lives in much deeper and meaningful ways. But don't we all have to learn this truth in many different ways and also again and again? James writes in James 4, 13 through 17, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whatever or whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So, if you're a planner, organizer, and pretty obsessive about it, what do you need to constantly preach to yourself? If the Lord wills, my plan will turn out. But if they don't turn out the way I thought, it's not the end of the world, but an opportunity to acknowledge God's sovereignty over my life, whatever happens. Why? Because he is a good God who knows exactly what I need to learn to trust him even as I plan. What if your middle name is more along the lines of Mr. or Ms. Wanderlust and you tend to never plan anything except maybe getting up each day? Well, the Lord has a lot to say about ordering your day and using your time wisely and learning self-control and discipline too. Why? Because you belong to him. And so it's imperative to realize your time and days are not just your own. Submission to the one you call Lord, you see, is only as good as whether he really is your Lord. In verses 8 and 9, Paul explains why he doesn't plan to come immediately. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. There are many adversaries. Here Paul lets the Corinthians know that there is much for him still to do in Ephesus. Do you see the contrasting factors in his ministry here? There are many adversaries, but the Lord has opened the door for very effective ministry in spite of the difficulties. The riot stirred up 
that we read about in Acts 19, verses 23 through 41, threatened his mission, but he was seeking and seeing God's work. Paul's service in the church in the city was effective, and many were believing, but the many adversaries were keeping him on guard and preventing him from becoming overly confident. What's the third thing Paul wants to convey to the Corinthians? That's in verses 10 and 11. Paul gives them instructions about Timothy coming to Corinth. In verse 10 and 11, we read, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. It sounds like Paul is trying to get Timothy to Corinth before he himself can get there. Why does Paul instruct the Corinthians not to despise him, which then means they must honor him? Well, because Paul knows there are still those in the Corinthian church who had trouble accepting his teaching, so he realizes they might react the same way to Timothy. Timothy speaks in Paul's name and was younger, but Paul writes that he is doing the work of the Lord that I, as I am. They might dishonor Timothy as Paul's representative, but Paul fully expects the Corinthians to return Timothy to him as one involved in the mission of the Lord's church. Next, the fourth thing Paul wants to convey is in verse 12. Paul informs them of Apollos' reluctance to come until a later date. In verse 12, we read, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Apollos, remember, had already played a huge role of teaching in this Corinthian church. He was a skilled speaker from Alexandria who had actually been commissioned by the Ephesians to minister to the spiritual needs of the Corinthians. We read about that in Acts 18 and 19. Since this verse begins with the last usage of the phrase, now, concern, now concerning, the Corinthians must have asked Paul in their previous letter to him if he could get Apollos back to them to help out. Remember, there had been many divisions in this church over people following certain favorite teachers. Paul strongly urged Apollos then to revisit Corinth. And because he did ask Apollos to do this, we know that the, these teachers weren't the reason for those divisions. That was on the members of the congregation. What we don't know here is the reason or reasons why Apollos was reluctant to go to Corinth right then. At this point, Paul switches gears. The fifth 
fifth thing Paul wants to convey is a five-part command or exhortation. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Paul exhorts them, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then he says in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. So the first part of this command is be watchful. This verb is an imperative, a command in the present tense. It means to be alert and not sleep, be on your guard, and is often connected to being ready for Christ's return. In other words, don't be spiritually indifferent and listless. Remember, many of these Corinthians had been getting drunk at the Lord's table. There are a lot of things the scripture teaches us to watch out for. And here are just a few. We're supposed to watch out for Satan's strategies and work. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. We're to watch out for temptation. In Mark 14, 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're to watch out for apathy and indifference and disregard for God's word. In one of the letters to the churches in Revelation 3, we read, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Another thing to watch out for is false teachers. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, we read, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As I mentioned earlier, one special thing the church has always insisted on watching for and been taught to watch for is the Lord's return. In Matthew 24:42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The second part of this command is to stand firm in the faith. This is a command not to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. 
In other words, faith here is the faith of truth, the content of the gospel. It's not the faith of trusting. The Corinthians were constantly faced, as we are, with the temptation to compromise the truth of the gospel in order to fit in with their culture. This is a common problem for all of us since we constantly hear such things like very little is certain and almost nothing is absolute. In other words, almost everything is relative and tentative and negotiable. One of the most important lessons for us as we understand what the Corinthians were facing and how many of them were compromising the truth of the gospel and God's word is that human philosophy and wisdom had all but obliterated their view of God's word. They were trying to combine human wisdom and God's wisdom. And the result, as Paul explained so well in this letter, was very tragic. The uniqueness and the authority of God's revealed truth was undermined. The third part of this command, Paul writes, is, says, act like men. And this is Paul's way of saying, be mature. It's the basic idea of mature courage. And what does the mature person have that the immature does not? A sense of control and confidence and courage. Already in chapter 14, verse 20, Paul has said, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And back in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul says they are people of the flesh, not spiritual people, infants of Christ, who are not yet ready to be fed with solid food, but only milk. So what's the foundation for any Christian's growth in maturity? Well, Paul, again, makes this really clear when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The fourth part of Paul's command here in Corinthians chapter 16 is be strong. And here it means the inner spiritual strength that can only come from God. So the command is to submit to him so that he can strengthen us. He supplies everything we need. The last part of this command is in verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. 
this last command emphasizes the right way to do the previous four commands in love. Our motivation should be, has to be, the love we are to have for our brethren. In other words, no one is to act in their own interest, even while standing firm and acting like men. We must do all these things in love, including defending the faith, disciplining erring members, and interacting with one another. The sixth and seventh things Paul wants to convey are both examples of people from their own church that they should recognize and follow. So evidently, they hadn't been recognizing these people as good examples. In verse 15 and in verse 16, Paul says, or he admonishes those in the congregation who need to be subject to and respectful to one particular household of people who have devoted themselves to the service of others. This first group was the household of Stephanus, the first converts in Achaia, Paul says. Achaia, which is southern Greece, where Corinth is. They devoted themselves to the service of the others. So Paul holds them up for the others to see, and he honors them, including with these every fellow worker and laborer in the church. He's practicing what he preached, showing the vital importance of every part of the body of Christ, no matter how hidden their service may be to most of the congregation. The second example he holds up is in verse 17 and 18. Paul recognizes three men who had come to Paul from Corinth and urges the Corinthians to recognize them in their service and maturity. These are probably the leaders who brought Paul the letter with the questions. And look what Paul says about Stephanus again, yes, that's him, and Fortunatus and Achaicus. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. There were some folks to rejoice about from this Corinthian church. This is the third time we've seen Stephanus in 1 Corinthians. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 16, and then we see him twice right here. He's obviously the most influential of the three. They probably brought Paul the letter with all the questions and filled him in on the church's spiritual condition. Why was Paul so glad to have these men there with him in Ephesus? Because they had unique gifts and abilities along with maturity that most of the Corinthians did not have and proved it in the way they encouraged Paul as they stood with him in his difficult circumstances in Ephesus. Paul says to give recognition to such people. 
when this trio returns to Corinth, they should be warmly received and duly recognized as leaders. Such people tells us that all who unfailingly give of their time and talent to the well-being of Christ's church should be recognized and appreciated. Not only did Paul give the Corinthians examples to follow, but examples from their own church. The eighth thing Paul wants to convey are some heartfelt greetings. In verses 19 and 20, we, we see Paul communicates greetings from Aquila and Prisca and the others meeting for worship in their house and other brothers in Ephesus with Paul. In verse 19 and 20, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Aquila and Prisca had been a big part of Paul's life for a long time. This Jewish couple had been expelled from Rome and then settled in Corinth before Paul arrived. All three of them practiced tent making for a living, and Paul stayed with them when he arrived on his second missionary journey. Aquila and Prisca, which is an abbreviation of Priscilla, became active participants in Paul's missionary endeavors in Corinth. They also went to Ephesus with Paul, where they explained to Apollos the way of God more clearly. We read that in Acts 18.26. Also, in Ephesus, they opened their home to fellow believers and founded the church mentioned here. This text about the church meeting in their house does not establish that house churches are to be the norm. This is simply a matter of expediency. Why? Because there were not appropriate spaces to meet in. Synagogues wouldn't allow Christians to worship there once Christians were branded as apostates by the Jewish leaders. Public spaces contained a lot of art most of which was highly sexualized, and the architecture of the guild halls and public buildings was dominated by pagan themes and images, hardly proper venues for the new Christians to gather for worship. The holy kiss was merely a customary quick cheek-to-cheek -cheek greeting, prevented from being misinterpreted by Paul's usage of holy Holy kiss, he says. Don't miss the point that all the greetings Paul includes here, including his personal greeting written in his own hand, were meant to encourage the unity between different peoples from different areas. People who are united and are redeemed in Christ. The last things Paul wants to convey to the Corinthians include something quite unexpected and interesting. In between Paul's own personal greeting in verse 21 and his benediction in verses 23 and 24, he delivers a very strong warning in the first part of verse 22. 
to those Corinthian congregation members who were deliberately undermining the church. In verse 21, we see, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. The body of this letter may have had a scribe called an amanuensis actually write what was dictated to him by Paul. But Paul at least penned this closing greeting. In the first part of verse 22, Paul writes, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The word for love here is not agape, which is the usual word Paul uses in the epistles. Instead, we see phileo, which means to have tender affection. Phileo is not as strong as agape, but an implication here is that minimal affection is an element of the love that is acceptable to God. A good example of this and explaining this is Peter after the resurrection with Jesus. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. The first two times, Jesus used agape. But Peter answered, yes, I phileo you. The third time Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, he used phileo. And Peter answered the same, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. Jesus accepted that phileo love. You see, Peter did not claim agape, but even his kind affection evidenced his trust in Jesus. So if a person does not love the Lord with tender affection, then they obviously have no supreme love for Jesus and so no part in him at all. Who is Paul referring to here in this very strong and somewhat surprising warning? Probably those in the Corinthian church who named the name of Christ, but who also divide the church and agitate God's people. Throughout this letter, Paul has had to address people who were deliberately undermining the church and showed no love or affection for the Lord or those in his church. In fact, as we've walked through this letter, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and chapter by chapter, we have seen the failures and problems of the Corinthians flow out of this one huge issue. So many showed no evidence of love for the Lord. No matter what sins Paul has exposed, whether proud wisdom or unbridled sexual behavior or all the rampant lawsuits, the selfish posturing for show or all sorts of willful disbelief, a greater root cause has really inspired them all, and that is the failure to love the Lord Jesus. Jesus' love for his people has been on display throughout. His bearing our sins upon himself and subsequent death on the cross and glorious resurrection 
Because of this love for us, Paul has shown that our love and gratefulness must be given back to God. It's the mark of those who belong to him. Back in chapter 8, verse 3, Paul wrote, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so that love must also extend to others, especially the saints. Paul has shown over and over again that our love to the Lord greatly reduces the wicked behavior seen in this church because love for God bears good fruit. And in the absence of loving God, only growing wickedness fills that void. Displayed in all the kinds of selfish behavior tearing the Corinthian church apart. So listen to Paul's words here in the first part of verse 22, alongside of what he said back in chapter 8, verse 6. First verse 22a, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. But what Paul wrote wrote back in chapter 8, verse 6 is, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Most of you are familiar with a passage in Deuteronomy called the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Listen closely to what's linked here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Do you see what Paul is doing? Jesus, the Lord, is to be loved with everything we are. If not, That person does not really know him, and so is accursed. Then, right after that, Paul writes at the end of verse 22, Our Lord, come, which is the translation of Maranatha. This is the plea of the church and has been for ages But here, could this also be an appeal for the Lord to come and remove the accursed who have been harming it and disregarding Christ in it? Wow, what a way to close a letter. Please bow with me as I close in prayer. Oh God, we have seen the remarkable and powerful letter to this early church. And we have seen in it so many issues that also plague the time we are living in now. We also have realized how easy it is to drift into the compromises of your truth Thank you for the ways you use this letter to bring to light our own sin and how the finished work of your Son has brought us into an eternal living relationship with you, our Creator 
and Almighty God. Keep us growing and watchful and standing firm in your strength as we grow in our love and affection for you every single day you give us breath. Guard and protect us as your church and use us to proclaim the truth of your gospel to those around us. You are our only hope and what a glorious hope we have in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Verse 30, 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.